Chapter Three of On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck by Robert Pitcher Woodward. Chapter Three Polishing Shoes at Vassar. Little drops of water, little grains of dirt, make the road so muddy, donk won't take a spurt. Dog-eared dog rolls by Pod. Never before had I encountered such a disagreeable road. While I tramped over the highlands from Peekskill to Fishkill Landing, Macaroni barely crawled. He kept me constantly in the fear that he would lie down and roll and finally he did so, selecting a mud puddle. I was told donkeys fairly dote on dust, and that a roll will invigorate them more than will a measure of grain. But mine was different to other donkeys. Before leaving Peekskill, Dr. Shook said Mac showed symptoms of mud fever, although the tendency lay strongly towards phlebitis, farsi, and poll evil. He even warned me that I might expect epizootic to set in any day. To urge Mac on to Newburgh in one day necessitated my start at daybreak. We reached the Fishkill Ferry at half-past eight, covering the twenty-mile journey in fifteen hours. The Highland Road was rough where the mud had dried. Steep and rocky summits stood out, bold and barren save where occasional bunches of young cedars huddled among the denuded trees. Finally I saw a small structure through whose open windows could be heard a chorus of youthful voices intoning, The dog caught the pig by the year. It was a schoolhouse. I remembered that song of my boyhood. I thought it would be interesting to drop in, and forthwith rapped on the door. Meanwhile, Mac stuck his head in the window, causing a deafening chime of cries within. A painful silence followed. I waited patiently for admittance, then I opened the door. The room was deserted, the exit at the opposite end wide open. I crossed the floor and looked out to discover the teacher and two dozen young ones scurrying up the mountain through the scant woods. I called to them but they ran the faster. Wonder what they thought they saw. With every mile's advance, we penetrated more deeply the mountain wilderness. Before long, Macaroni began to slow up. Again, I had recourse to the scheme of suspending an apple over his head. The beast increased his speed at once, making a lunge at the unobtainable and chasing it with rapid stride. He evidently had never read the story about the boy who pursued a rainbow, and unlike that boy was stupid enough to be fooled twice. A few miles beyond, I answered some inquiries of a woman out driving, and sold her a photo. I had no sooner stopped with the article in hand than I was startled with the sound of gagging behind, and turning, I beheld the donkey wrenching in the throes of strangulation. Having lowered the apple to the ground, he had swallowed it, together with the string and half the bough. 
I withdrew the intrusions with difficulty and returned to the woman who had fainted. I had no restoratives, but I had once resuscitated a Jew with a novel expedient and determined to try the same plan in this case. These pictures are fifteen cents each, although I sometimes get twenty-five for one, I said somewhat forcibly. Don't trouble yourself, madam. Trust me with your pocketbook. I will. At once the woman awoke, and counting out the lesser amount mentioned, pulled on the reins and drove away. Let me grasp the hand of that man who can beat a woman at a bargain. When passing through Cold Spring, I was startled by the booming of cannon at West Point, just across the river. I had not expected such honors. So overawed was I by the salute that I forgot to count the guns, but presumed there were twenty-one. Far above and behind, the group of academic buildings still frowned at Fort Putnam, deploring its shameful neglect and casting envious glances at the modern observatory below and the newer buildings lower down. Every mile of the beautiful Hudson recalled to mind happy memories of my own school days, which made my present ordeal doubly distressing. When night lowered her somber shades, my thoughts took flight to more distant scenes. My heart and brain grew weary, and I forgot for a time that my bones were lame and my feet sore from walking, walking, walking on an endless journey, with no perceptible evidence of approaching nearer to the goal. At length the Albany night boat steamed past us, its myriad lights dancing on the ruffled waters, or revealing a jolly group of passengers on the deck. The air was painfully quiet, and when the song, Oh, where is my wandering boy tonight? floated over to me in answer to Macaroni's bray, I found consolation in the thought that perhaps some of the tourists recognized my outfit in the dark and pitied me. I had by this time discovered mountain climbing to be a donkey's leading card. He may loiter on the flat, but he will make you hump when it comes to steep ascents. The night was mild for that season of the year, and becoming considerably heated, I doffed my overcoat and spread it over the saddle on my Macintosh. When we were descending the hill on the other side, I dismounted and led Mac with the bridle reins, but kept a good watch on the coats. After a while, however, I became so absorbed in thought that I neglected my duty, and finally, when I did turn to inspect them, they were missing. It gave me the worst fright I had experienced since leaving New York. Staking Mac to a gooseberry bush, I immediately retraced my steps a mile or more through an Egyptian darkness before I found the garments lying securely in the mud. On my return to the bush, I was alarmed not to find the donkey. That phenomenon had eaten that prickly shrub to the roots and fled either down the road to Fishkill or through the woods. I started out for town on a run. Imagine my astonishment to find Mac patiently standing in front of the ferry. The boat had landed her passengers, and had the donkey not taken the precaution to anticipate me, 
we should have had to remain on that side of the river for the night. As it was, the ferry waited for Max Ryder, thanks to the considerate pilot. Newburgh. I recognized her by her streets at an angle of 45 degrees. Mac took to the place hugely. I stopped at a small combination hotel and restaurant where roast turkey and pumpkin pie decorated the windows and made arrangements for the night. When about to leave, I was visited by a delegation from the local militia who, for a fair consideration, induced us both to remain over and referee a game of basketball that evening at the armory. Mac did not accept very gracefully and had to be coerced. What I knew about the game wouldn't tax a baby's mind, but that didn't matter. It proved to be an event for the regiment, for Pod, and for Macaroni. Next day I found my donkey's maladies increasing. They had already tripled in number since leaving Peekskill, and to think I had arrived at Newburgh just two days too late to secure a sound animal. I pushed on to Poughkeepsie. On arriving at that university city, I was pleased to find the inhabitants not quite so slow as the appearance of the place would indicate. The city has, of late years, become the Henley of America. It is the seat of Eastman's Business College, as well as a very progressive college for girls, Vassar. The residents generally drop three letters in spelling the name of their proud city and make it Poughkeepsie. There were four good points I liked about the place, and that was one of them. The other three were the mayor, the Vassar girls, and a newspaper reporter, who for a consideration engaged Mac and me to appear at the theater in an amateur play. It was to be a new stage in our travels. The urchin who led the donkey about the streets proudly bore in one hand a standard inscribed, Keep your eyes on the donkey, and those who obeyed saw printed on a canvas blanket gracefully draped over Mac's back the startling announcement, We'll appear tonight in Hogan's Alley at Kirshner's Hall. I believe Mac paraded the city utterly oblivious of the interest he created. I had promised to have my donkey at the hall at five sharp. There were two staircases for him to climb, and I had not contemplated the enormity of the task before me. We tugged on his halter. We set three dogs barking at his heels, but the only time he stirred was when he removed the dogs. He just braced himself well against the curb and brayed until he had called the audience to the show two hours ahead of time. After a while, two strong policemen took a hand with me in a three-handed game and turned over a jack. Finally, four more men assisting, the beast was carried upstairs and into the theater, where he was forced to walk a plank onto the stage. Then I fed and watered him, and combing his fur the right way, left him to the melancholy contemplation of his position. When we returned an hour later, he was still as immovable as a statue. The stage manager directed me to ride the donkey out from behind the scenery at a given signal, so I began to practice with him. 
I cannot describe all that happened the next hour. By seven o'clock Mac was fairly broken, and everything looked promising. The house was crowded. Only a portion of the attendance of the fair held in connection with the play, downstairs, could find seats, and the performance was to be repeated. One part of the play, however, not on the program, could not be reproduced. Apparently no attempts had ever been made to convert Mac to religion, for when the Salvation Army entered the scene, banging drums and clashing cymbals, the terrified Jack began to back toward the footlights. The stage manager, fearing lest the beast might back off the stage, dropped the curtain. But that didn't check Mac. He backed against the curtain and under it and dropped plumb into the audience, making five laps in a second his best time to date. One fat man, overburdened, crashed through his chair. Fortunately, nobody was seriously injured, but several had spasms, and more than one girl crawled over the backs of the seats in terror. Such doings, as a paper stated next day, were never known before in this town in the annals of donkeys, four-legged or two-legged either. As soon as the excitement was over, Mac was assisted on to the stage, and the play was twice repeated, all three performances before crowded houses. While returning Mac to his stable, I heard the bray of a donkey, and resolved next day to look him up. Then I sent a message to a young lady friend at Vassar, and wrote my weekly story for the papers. I frequently refer to my Vassar friends, but I doubt if they ever mention me. I had written one that I would polish two dozen pairs of Vassar shoes at the rate of fifty cents a pair, either on or off. Allowing me two minutes for each pair, and half a minute for making change, I believed I could polish to the Queen's taste some forty-eight pairs in two hours. My proposal was accepted. The hour set was 5 a.m., while the teachers would be dreaming about the binomial formula, blue light and turnips, and I was expected to polish the shoes on the foot. Accordingly, I was aroused from slumber at four and practiced on the stove legs for a full half hour to get polishing down to a science. Then I took the trolley car to the hedge fence, stole in through the stately gate, and took the time of the huge clock above the entrance. Then I took my own time. I had four minutes to spare, and knew Vassar girls were anything but slow. The days of chivalry are not gone, says George Eliot. Notwithstanding Burke's grand dirge over them, they live still in that far-off worship paid by many a youth and man to the woman of whom he never dreams that he shall touch so much as her little finger or the hem of her robe. I had no sooner placed my chair at the right marble staircase than I heard the rustle of skirts, immediately followed by a bevy of charming girls stealing down the steps on tiptoe, all a giggle and a smile, balancing their supple forms with outstretched arms and enlivening the early dawn with the mischief beaming from their eyes. Good morning, they said, as each in turn shook hands with me. I was inspired to hug every one of them, but dared not show the lack of polish. 
Raising my hat, I said softly, Shine? And number one mounted the throne, soon to be daubed a queen. Bless me, wasn't she pretty? As she gaily lifted her skirts to give my brushes a free swing, a perfect pair of ankles burst into view, daintily imprisoned in black silk hose, and, well, I naturally was excited. Blacking flew like the mud did when the beer wagon bumped against Mac, and a brush flopped out of my hand through a colored window, letting in more light, for it was still quite dusky. It seemed to be impossible for the young lady to keep her feet in place on the block, and not until she suggested I should hold her boot in place did I begin to polish to my credit. After that, no girl could keep her feet stationary unless I held her foot with one hand and polished with the other. Next, and another winsome creature took the chair and poured fifty pennies into my hand. I took it for granted that she was some copper king's daughter. I worked so hard that I was soon perspiring. After finishing a dozen pair, when about to polish the second shoe on number thirteen, someone claimed she heard a professor reading Volkapuk. At once there was a scurry and a rustle of skirts. Number thirteen kicked over the blacking, accidental, and fled with one shoe unpolished. But that odd shoe did just as good service as any of the rest. The whole bevy of girls vanished before I had time to collect my senses, my chair, and my brushes, and chase myself away. When once started, I ran to beat the cars and reached the hotel in time for breakfast, the richer by six dollars and a lace handkerchief. Come to think of it, what an extraordinary adventure that was for a modest and dignified traveler with a donkey. I wondered, as I sipped my coffee, what the principal said when she discovered so many neat-looking shoes. End of chapter 3 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina